So uh, where's Emma? Do you all know Emma? This is Emma. She's being bashful right now. But she said to me, it's Mother's Day. Could you preach not such a long sermon? And so I told Emma that I would give it my best shot, that I would preach fast and hard. So I'm going to preach fast and hard for Emma and for all the rest of you. Uh, It was early in my preaching career, uh, very early on, that uh, about this time of the year as Mother's Day was approaching that I had planned out this sermon series that I was going to preach and uh, had spent some time well in advance planning it out, you know, week by week what would happen. And it just so happened that it was Mother's Day. And I remember walking in uh, beforehand and people were kind of gathering in the foyer and uh, this uh, sweet uh, young woman came up to me and she said, "Um, I I saw the bulletin and I saw the title, and I saw the scripture for this morning's sermon, and is that a typo? She said, and I said, uh, oh, I, no, not really, and she said, well, I think what you're intending to preach on is, and I was, the passage for that, it was from um, the gospel of Luke, and um, where it says, if anyone, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother... <laughs> On Mother's Day, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus actually said that. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, that seems rather harsh. And what a choice for Mother's Day, right? It's one of those hand plant kind of moments. We didn't have emojis back then for our texting, but if there was, it would have been one of those hand plants like, oh, what are you thinking? Today is not exactly, exactly that, but we do find ourselves in this series thinking about the body of Christ and thinking a lot about the place of mothers and daughters of women in the life of the body of Christ and how we share life together in the body of Christ. And really that passage from Luke 14 is not so much Jesus advocating that we hate anyone or anything, right? That's not the point. It's not so much that. But that passage is really Jesus looking out at the masses, a lot of people who were following after him and eager to follow after this new teacher, this one who represented um, something big that they had anticipated and waited for for a long time. He looked at, at the masses so eager and so curious, and really he's asking the question, how far are you willing to follow Jesus? That's the question. How far are you willing to follow? What are the limits of your willing to hear and to see Jesus and what he says and what he does and what he calls you to? And are there limits really? How far are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to abandon yourself to discover new life? Are you willing to abandon the world you've constructed for yourself. For a new world and a new future, are you willing even to let go of the preconceived notions you may have held dearly for so long to follow Jesus? Because I'm telling you that those masses that followed after Jesus in that moment when he looked up and saw them all, they had no idea what he was pointing them to. And how much it would collide and create tension and dissonance with everything they had been taught and believed, the history and the tradition that when Jesus came and he he held it and he brought it forward and he invited them to see what it was really pointing them towards. 
Are you willing to lay all of that down to follow Jesus? How far are you willing to follow? Frankly, it's a good question, and it's a hard one to answer because it's difficult, and it's sometimes painful to let go of those things. I've got to tell you, the tilt-a-whirl is not my friend. Do you know the tilt-a-whirl? Again, early on, when uh, our oldest daughter, daughters were very young at the church we served in Wichita Falls, we had kind of a spring picnic kind of thing like you do sometimes, and not far from where our church was, there was this amusement park called Funland. And Funland was really, it was one of those carnivals that travel from town to town, only it broke down in our town, and so they just left it there. And it had been there for years and years and years and years, and it was kind of old and rickety, but we had a picnic beforehand at the pavilion, and we grilled hot dogs and all that. We ate hot dogs, and, and then we went over to Funland for fun times, and my daughter Claire wanted to ride the Tilt-A-Whirl. And so she got on the Tilt-A-Whirl. I did not get on the Tilt-A-Whirl with her, because I'm smarter than that. I know my limits. But she got on the Tilt-A-Whirl, and the Tilt-A-Whirl began to spin around, you know, like the Tilt-A-Whirl does. You can see the picture on the screen. And she was kind of enjoying that for a minute, and I watched her, and I could tell that maybe she had had uh, one too many hot dogs before the Tilt-A-Whirl. So I was thinking, man, this could, not, this could turn out poorly. And the Tilt-A-Whirl finally stopped, and she got off the Tilt-A-Whirl, and she came over to me, and I was like, whew, survived that one. And she said to me, I want to ride it again. And I thought, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. But she kept begging me, and so I sent her to ride. She rode the Tilt-A-Whirl again, and this time she got on the Tilt-A-Whirl, and, and when she went around and I could see her come around, I could tell she was in the middle, and she was holding on to the bar, and her head was braced back against it, and she was just trying to hang on for dear life, and she was turning green. And it went around, and it went around, and it went around. And there was some, they, they hired these kids, these, I mean, maybe they were teenagers. They seemed very, very young to me to operate these things. And I was watching him, and I was watching her, and I was thinking, does he notice that she's not doing well with this? And he just let it go, and he was kind of daydreaming or whatever, and he let it go for more times than you should let the tilt-a-whirl go. It just kept going, and I felt completely out of control as she spun into um, various degrees of sickness. The tilt-a-whirl is not my friend. No one likes to feel, especially about things and people that you know and love the most, no one likes to feel out of control. We want to be in control. Give me the lever. Can I pull the lever to make the thing stop? Can I orient things and structure things so that I don't feel so anxious and out of control? It's difficult for us to answer the question, how far are we willing to follow Jesus? Because sometimes it means that we have to lose control. And we're surrendering that control over um, to something beyond ourselves. So here is God, present and active in a world torn apart, reconciling and redeeming, drawing the whole creation forward, and the story is about that. And even uh, as God walks with Israel, the story's about that. God's desire to redeem and reconcile the whole humanity and through all the twists and turns, the story is pressing that way against all that has pulled the creation, the world, and human relationships apart. 
God's pressing back against that. And it's pointing towards something most fully revealed in the story of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. And I want us to take a few moments this morning. I'm trying to say just a few moments, just a few moments this morning. To hold the story of Jesus in light of that trajectory, that narrative arc, right? Of what, of what God is up to in the whole thing, in the whole project we're trying to make sense of. I want to invite us to hear the story of Jesus and ask ourselves, how far are we willing to follow? Are you willing to follow? So first of all, I want you to hear how the story of the coming of Jesus is told. And I'm going to invite us to spend just a moment with Luke's gospel. I'm going to do this very quickly. But in Luke's gospel, the story of of Jesus' entry into the world really begins with these long narrative accounts of... uh, announcements that come before Jesus is ever born. In the first announcement, the angel comes to a man named Zechariah who's in the temple. This is found in Luke 1. And I want you to notice something about Zechariah. Zechariah is serving as a priest in the temple of the Lord. And Zechariah is chosen by lot, meaning among all the priests, he's the one that gets chosen to go uh, perform the priestly duties in the most holiest place and time in the temple. And Zechariah, and that's in that moment, that's where Zechariah receives this messenger. And Zechariah, as um, Zechariah received that message, um, can hardly believe it. In fact, it says Zechariah is in disbelief. And do you remember what happens? What the... uh, consequence of that is, what kind of happens going forward, Zechariah is not able to speak. He loses his ability to speak, his voice, the announcement that he's going to uh, have a child, disbelief. Uh, Let's get more fundamental. Who is Zechariah? First of all, Zechariah is a man. (laughs) You recognize the name Zechariah as being attached to a male name, and Zechariah is a priest, And Zechariah is a chosen priest among all the priests. And Zechariah sits in that position. I want you to know that that Zechariah represents uh, the position of influence and power and voice and privilege in males in ancient Near Eastern culture in the world in which Zechariah lived. The next story that's told by Luke in Luke chapter 1 is not of Zechariah, but as a, uh, another angel who comes to visit and give a message to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Even though you and your wife Elizabeth have been barren, Zechariah says, I don't think that's even possible, and he loses his voice. The next messenger that comes in Luke chapter 1 comes to not Zechariah, but to Mary, right? And who is Mary. Mary is, we recognize, Mary is a female. Mary's a young female. She's betrothed to be married to Joseph. Do you know what that means? Well, I'll just tell you what it means (laughs) for Emma's sake. Um, It means that Joseph is likely, I'm not going to just say some years, but many years older than her. And that Mary is betrothed to Joseph means that that arrangement has been struck for some time, probably when she was very, very young. That's the way it worked. 
dispel yourself of the notion that there was some romantic chemistry between Joseph and Mary, and at some point Joseph dropped down in a knee like all those shows that we see these days and pulled out the ring and asked Mary to, if, if she would... That's not how it happened. It was a deal struck between Joseph and Mary's father when she was very young for a marriage that would not take place for several years. She was a very young girl, and when she reached age, Joseph, many years older than her, could marry her. That's what it means. Mary has no voice, no say in this. In this culture, Mary has no power. Not just Mary, but every young woman and every woman in that culture. And so the angel comes to Mary, just as an angel came with a message to Zechariah, and says, Mary, you are favored by God, and you're going to be with child. And she said, blessed, let it be to me according to your word. And guess what? Luke says that Mary receiving this news in this way with belief the one to first faithfully respond, how far, Mary, are you willing to follow Jesus? Has voice. She sings. That's the Magnificat. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. He's been mindful of me, the humble state of his servant. He's brought down high rulers and he's lifted up those who are lowly. What do you think? Where do you think that comes from? Is she the ruler or is she the one that's lowly? Right? This reversal, I, 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 look, let me just underscore here because we've got a lot to talk about today and Emma's anxious. Emma never knew when she came to church today she was going to be talked about this much in church. Uh, look, when this story was told in this way to the people who heard it, it was shocking. This comparison, Mary and Joseph, this contrast is intentional in how Luke tells the story about how God comes into the world, right? Those, the way the world has been structured and ordered, I called this last week the patriarchy, which vests power and privilege and voice and influence in males over females as a consequence of the fall, this passage disrupts all that. It breaks all that up. And we read this, and we've heard it before, and we may not think much of it, but I'm telling you, those first people who heard this story, it, it was revolutionary, shocking, hard to believe even. That's what's taking place in this story. I can't underscore enough how against the backdrop of the patriarchy of ancient Near Eastern culture, the fact that you would tell the story of the coming of God, long-awaited Messiah, in this way, is almost unbelievable. It's unbelievable. To us, we think, well, yeah, Zechariah, he couldn't, he didn't, he lost his voice and couldn't talk, and Mary, and she's the faithful one, Jesus comes through. We don't think much of it, but, but that's what's really going on here in this story. How far are you willing to follow Jesus who's born into the world in such a way 
that it reverses all those things, that it presses back against the patriarchy and envisions a different way of thinking about men and women in the world, men and women among the people of God. Not only is this how the story begins in telling about God coming into the world in Jesus, but I want you to notice all the ways that the story of Jesus embodies what, against the backdrop of that time and place, is a radical affirmation of women. And that, my friends, is important to say on Mother's Day. A radical affirmation, meaning a shocking, disruptive affirmation of women in the story of Jesus. There's this woman who's at the well in John chapter 4. You'll see some of these. The Samaritan woman came to him and said, uh, as Jesus approaches her and says, will you give me a drink? Remember this story, woman at the well? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Notice that. It's almost scandalous for men and women to interact in this kind of way. That's what she's calling out. I'm not going to ask how many of you have watched Bridgerton. Just don't go there. In the culture, men and women do not interact in this way, and Jesus approaches her directly and has this conversation. But notice that when the disciples come and they see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, they see them talking together, they approach him. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to him talking with a woman. And I wanted you to see these two verses because in the first one, you might say, well, the shock here is that he's talking to a Samaritan. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. But when the disciples come and see this, they don't say, hey, why are you talking to a Samaritan? The disciples say, why are you talking to a woman? Right? Because it's scandalous. It's scandalous. It's shocking. And what happens in, as, as, as John chapter 4 unfolds, I'll tell you, is that as a result of that exchange, she goes back and she's discovered something that God is doing. And it probably has transformed who she is because she was treated by Jesus, the Messiah, not only with all of the love and grace of God, but in honoring and dignifying her as a woman. And she goes back and she tells everyone what she's seen and heard. And it doesn't say everything that she says when she goes back into her community and she begins proclaiming the good news of God. She goes back into her community and she's proclaiming the good news of God. But I'm telling you, I believe that part of that is he sat down and he talked to me. Can you believe it? There are all these instances like this. Um... She goes and she preaches, and I just need to note this. It says in John 4, many believed because of the, wit, uh, the woman's testimony. Many believed because of the woman's testimony. I'm telling you, she was an effective proclaimer of the good news of God. When Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem toward the end of his life with his disciples, he comes to Bethany first. This is in Mark 14. And there's a woman, he's gathered with his disciples at the home and in a home. And there's a woman who comes there in the midst of them. And 
she comes before Jesus and she takes a jar of very expensive perfume and she breaks the jar of perfume and she begins to anoint Jesus. And the disciples say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is she doing? Remember this? They complain about this. And they complain about it because she's anointing him and they don't understand what's going on with that. But I'll tell you what, they complain about this because it's a woman who's doing it and this kind of anointing is too close of an association of what priests do. Read all the accounts of anointing. And here she is in all of her boldness, walking there before them all, kneeling down and anointing Jesus. And that act of anointing is not only a priestly function, it's also one that foreshadows and announces that Jesus is king through his death. And so Jesus says, leave her alone. For I tell you that what she's done, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told. Her life becomes a proclamation of the good news of God. You know, the first to declare the resurrection of Jesus, the first people to declare the resurrection of Jesus, guess who they were? They were the women. They were the women. While he was in Bethany, this, this below, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and they received the news and the instruction to go back and proclaim. They had to go back and, and declare to the disciples now, my point in, in, in lifting these up is to say, we're familiar with this enough that that doesn't seem strange to us, but when these accounts were written to the audiences that they were written, it would be glaring to them that women are functioning in these ways and are centered in the story, Right? We don't notice that. And then perhaps most shocking, I want to zero in here for just a minute, where Jesus, um, the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him about the law and divorce in Matthew 19. And uh, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You've heard that before? probably at lots of weddings. This is a legal question. And Jesus is reframing the legal code that for us is now codified in the Old Testament. He's reframing it. Marriage as Jesus, get this, marriage as Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19 is not about a legal contract whereby the woman becomes property of the man. That's the subtext. But pointing all the way back to the beginning, he says, it's not a legal contract where women are property, it's a covenant. And tell me, do you see in this passage, do you see the together and the alongside? Do you see it? And I would suggest to you that that is incredibly disruptive to a world cast 
in every way and structured by its legal code, where women have no voice and no privilege, they are property. The old notion of the dowry, they are property. And all of this in the teaching of Jesus is radically disrupted. We often think about why did Jesus get, why did they react to Jesus so violently and ultimately see him as threat? Because he was undoing a lot of the foundations of society as they had constructed it. And that at least, at very least, had to do with the patriarchy that had existed for so long. And frankly, exists, continues to persist. Okay, here's the point. The story leading us all the way up to Jesus is pressing back against that patriarchy and leaning into God's desire for reconciliation and the restoration, the together and the alongsideness of all things. How far are you willing to follow Jesus? Last quick, quick part of the sermon. Um, It's not only in the life of Jesus, but in the life of the Jesus community. In the dawn of the resurrection, they are huddled together in Jerusalem, trying to figure out and make sense of what's taking place in the life and the death of Jesus. And Scripture says that in Acts chapter 2, when they're all assembled there, they heard the sound of a violent wind. A wind? The wind? Hello, who's tracking with me? Wind? Breath? Spirit, anybody know the Hebrew word? You do. <laughs> Ruach. Ruach. It's that, it's that word from Genesis 1. And that wind blows through and the Spirit of God descends upon the community. And all of a sudden, they are able to communicate in languages, and under, different languages, but understand each other. That which has divided them, language... Now it's transcended by the gift of the Spirit. That's taking place at Acts chapter 2. And in light of the coming of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, they pull forward those glimpses in the story early on in the prophets. This one. Uh, where is it? Suddenly a sound came. All of them were filled with the Spirit. Um, they began to speak to each other in different language as the Spirit enabled them and then it says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon my people. This is from the prophets. And as a result of that, your sons and daughters will prophesy. You should, you should have that kind of reaction. I tried to demonstrate. <laughs> it's unheard of. That when God in, God in the fullness of time comes decisively in the person of Jesus, and the Spirit of God descends on people. It's not the sons by themselves who are responsible. It's the sons and the daughters who are empowered by the Spirit with gifts. Spirit gifts are not discriminate. Now, not everyone gets the same gifts. Paul makes that clear. We'll look at that next week. But everyone gets gifts, regardless of whether they're male and female. And those gifts are to bless the people and bless the world, as God has always intended it. 
Wait, real quick. Colossians 2, Paul uses this kind of language about baptism to say that the salvation of God as a covenant sign. Just read this. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, and having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Do you understand that baptism reframes circumcision, circumcision as the act of who belongs in covenant relationship with God? Circumcision that had only been for males, male bodies. Man, I just, I, this one just came to me in my study of this again. Because I've, I've thought a lot about baptism, haven't you, over the years? And how significant it is to be joined in the, in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus and to new life. But that Paul says that those of you who are baptized, all of you belong. It's not just some sense of belonging or privilege. Circumcision, the inclusion of all. And then in Galatians 3, um, next slide, get this. Uh, well, maybe I didn't put that one in there, but I want you to hear it. This is Galatians 3.28. Therefore, all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus are one in Christ Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Galatians 3.28. I don't know if that one's going to... Oh, there it is. Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture. It doesn't mean we're not different, males and females. It doesn't mean that we're not gifted differently across the full spectrum of the body of Christ but it means we've all been given gifts to use for the body of Christ. And these distinctions that separate people in terms of their belonging and participation, these distinctions that separate people in the body of Christ on the basis of gender or ethnicity or social status no longer hold in baptism. Look, I know the Tilt-A-Whirl spins. And the Tilt-A-Whirl is not our friend. <laughs> kind of makes me a little bit nauseous just thinking about it. We feel out of control, but how far are you willing to follow Jesus? Really, follow Jesus. And what I believe is that Jesus is drawing towards us the salvation of God and the sanctification of all things. And that that's beyond the way we first think of it and most think of it, which is my personal salvation and right standing with God. The salvation of God is bigger than that. Paul's version, vision, his writing about the salvation of God is not just about the salvation of the individual, but the redemption and the reconciliation of all things, a whole new creation and a whole new humanity. He uses that term, the new humanity. It's a new way of being in relationship with each other. The redemption of all things, the new humanity. So we embrace the salvation of God, I would suggest to you, as the sanctifying work to lead us into 
a new kind of way of being in the body of Christ, male and female, where we all belong equally and we all participate according to the gifts that the Spirit has given, based not on gender, but rather the work of the Spirit in us. So next week, we're going to turn our attention to those places where there's evidence in, in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul and others, that that's actually taking place. We've not thought about that, but there are, there are, there's evidence of that. And there's also evidence of places where Paul seems to be saying something quite the contrary. Yes, you're familiar with those. And we're going to look at those together. All seeking, no matter what, to follow God's leading, to follow Jesus in those ways that he's inviting us to embrace the saving, redeeming, reconciling work of God. Let us pray. God, help us to receive this word. Help us to um, see Jesus who moves, to recognize, empower, lean in to God's desire um, for people to live together, male and female, in ways that reflect your image, O oh God. And help us as we struggle with this to make sense of what it means for us to discern and to allow your spirit to lead and gather us all up now as we move towards the table that we might take these things together, loving each other above all else, celebrating the gift of grace in Jesus, extending it to each other, offering ourselves to one another, broken and poured out for the sake of the world and for the sake of one another. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.